would, if you do have Bibles or your phone, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 1 through 12. And if you would, uh, if you're able to, would you stand? And I'll start at 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, but God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. And Father, what we ask now is that these words, as they go out from my mouth, would be your words, first and foremost. You know my weakness, you know my frame, you you know who I am, and yet, Lord, would you use me uh, as a mere vessel of what you would want to say this morning. And then I ask for my friends in this room, I ask for the power not to speak this time, but to hear. I ask for ears to hear and to not just audibly hear, but to actually receive and respond with a heartfelt response what your word is saying this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to start with a question this morning before we jump into our text that we just read. And the question is this, how do we as human beings, learn anything? How do we learn? How do we go from not knowing anything about a subject to knowing something about a subject to being proficient at that subject and then to becoming, Lord willing, experts at that subject? How do we go from that? Some of you know that my... um, my, my history is that before I became a pastor, I was a police officer. And, and as a police officer, there's a very particular way in which they train, I would say most police officers, to be police officers. And it goes like this. You typically will get hired by a department first. You, you know nothing, okay? And you get hired. And then they send you through usually about a six-month academy. Now, at that academy, they're yelling at you, and you're running, and you're dropping for push-ups. But what a lot of people don't know is you're also spending a lot of classroom time. You are sitting in a classroom 
learning from, from, from people who come and teach you, and you're memorizing. You're memorizing the law book. You're memorizing all kinds of things having to do with your job as a police officer. And then roughly six months later, you graduate, and you're feeling really good about yourself. And at that point, they put a little badge on you, and you go, oh, I got my badge. I am finally a police officer, except for the fact that no actual police officer believes you're a police officer at that moment. None of the guys at that department that you're about to go to respect you as a police officer because you have not done the job. You have simply sat in a classroom learning about the job, and you've not actually been there and done that. So what do they do? They put you through something called field training. And in field training, you have a field training officer in the business. They call it an FTO. Okay, And that FTO is a, is a seasoned veteran police officer that has done this for many, many years that sort of shows you the ropes. And here's how the beginning of the process goes. They say to you, when you're brand new and it's the very beginning of the FTO process, they say, stand over there, stay out of my way, and ask questions. And they're basically doing the job for the first however many you know, weeks or months. And then at some point, you are beginning to do the job along with them. And then at some point at the end of your FTO process, you're doing the job and they're standing back and just making sure that nothing really bad happens, right? And they're willing along the way, and some of them are a little more willing than others, to correct you when you make a mistake, and so I remember one time during my FTO period, we had, we had, uh, we had a guy sitting on the curb who was, uh, just to put it in basic terms, a felon who needed to go back. He had a warrant for his arrest to go back to prison. And he was sitting on the curb, and I was asked by my FTO to go to the car and get some paperwork. And as I did, I walked right by that guy, about three feet from him when he was standing on the curb, and I showed him my right side. Anybody know why that's a problem? That's where my gun is. And so there, there I was, putting my gun, presenting my gun three feet from this guy. Because I was just green, and I knew nothing, right? And so my FTO pulls me aside, and he goes, hey, 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 don't ever do that again. Right? And so there's a gruffness that they, that they, that they talk to you, that they use when they talk to you in, in police training. But what was he doing? What was he doing? He was exhorting me, to use Bible language, he was exhorting me, don't do that again. He was encouraging me, don't do that again. And so there are these, these, these training officers that we had in law enforcement, and what were they doing? They were helping us to get to the point where we were at least proficient in our jobs so that we could then continue to learn from others to at some point hopefully be experts. And I think that's how we learn everything. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm excluding the, the YouTube video stuff, right? The stuff that, that you learn, you need to know how to do it. Oh, I learned how to do it. I'm done. I'm talking about professions and careers and things that, are, that, that, that sort of take over all of our lives or a big portion of our lives. I'm convinced that this is how we learn. And I'm convinced that this is what God put into us to make us learn this way. We need others. And the Apostle Paul knew that as we look at our Bibles this morning. The Apostle Paul knew that there was a need for others to grow in the Christian life as well. After all, wasn't Paul the one who said, and some of us, some of us know this verse and we cringe a little bit, 
be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And we sit there and we go, really? That's, you're going to say to somebody else, like, hey, follow me, because I'm going to show you how to follow Christ. And there's a part of us that goes, Ooh, are, we, are we ready for that? Are we, are we, are, can we really say that? I believe from the rest of scripture that the answer is yes. And I believe that Paul is not just saying, well, I'm a super apostle, I'm a super Christian, I'm going to say this to you, but nobody else can say that. I believe that the answer is yes. And I believe that Paul's regular, um, his, his norm for the Christian life is that each and every person has somebody that they look to and they say, okay, I'm following you as you, as you point me towards Jesus. But how few of us have that? How few of us actually live that in our lives? And that's what I want you to see is that the Apostle Paul has that as a basic background understanding of how the Christian life is supposed to be. But if you've been following with us in the book of 1 Thessalonians, as I've been following on the video, you know that there was a little bit of a problem with the Thessalonian church and him being able to do that. Okay, Pastor Chris has talked about the fact that Paul came in with his companions into the city of Thessalonica and he preached the gospel with them. And as he preached the gospel, the word of God went out. And well, here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves, that's other people, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So in other words, Paul is describing this incredible act of God that took place in the city of Thessalonica where the gospel went forth, people responded, and they believed, and they threw away their idols, and they repented, and they lived for God. What an incredible thing that took place. But here's what you can be sure of. Where there is a work of God like that, Satan is right on his heels. And what we see in Acts chapter 17, verse 5, is here is what happened in the city of Thessalonica. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. And what we ultimately read about that is Paul and his companions had to leave the city because of the mob and the intensity that was going on. Now, we don't know exactly how long that was. Most scholars think it was a matter of weeks between the time when, the, when these Thessalonians became Christians, formed together in the church, and then when Paul had to leave. That means you've got a bunch of Christians gathering together on Sunday mornings going, what do we do? Hey, anybody want to preach? Anybody been a Christian longer than a week and a half? Oh, okay, you're preaching right? I mean, it was something like that. How, how did they even do, how did they function together as a, a church when, when, when most of these Christians had been Christians for two weeks and Paul wasn't there to do what he normally does? What does he normally do? Spend time with them. Show them. Follow me. Let me show you how to live this life. Let me show you what I do. And he wasn't able to do that. So what's the next best option? If you can't be there with them, what's the next best option? Here's what I think it was for Paul. You write 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That was the next best option. Because what you will notice in this book is that the words we and our and, and all of those first-person plurals, if you want to use fancy language, all of those words appear 
in these 12 verses, 21 times. You know what that means? Paul is saying, look at us, look at us, look at us, look at us. And again, we, we get a little uncomfortable with that. You gotta realize this is normal for every single profession. Everything we're doing, watch us, watch us, watch us. And that's essentially what he is saying. Now, what he'll do now in this time is he will take specifically five things now that he wants to say to the Thessalonian church. Five things, and I'm gonna call them five tactics that he is giving to the Thessalonian church to say, okay, you're brand new in the faith. Let me show you how to do this. And by the way, all of these things are pointing to what he already showed them when he was there living among them. So everything you're gonna see is, do you remember how we were this? Do you remember how we did that? And so as he's doing that, it really comes down to five things that he's saying to the, to the Thessalonian church, saying, this is how you live the Christian life. Here are five tactics, if you will, for an infant church on how to live the Christian life. Let's look at them now. And here's the main point, if you're taking notes. Paul's life among the Thessalonians teaches them how to preach the true gospel and disciple well. Paul's life among the Thessalonians teaches them how to preach the true gospel and to disciple well. Now let's look at our structure. How does our text break down? Our text breaks down, as I said, into five different sections, and here's what they are. We get three tactics for gospel preaching. Three tactics for gospel preaching. The first is this, and I'll explain each one of these as we go. Not empty, but bold. That's number one. Number two, not deceptive, but faithful. And number three, not manipulative, but gentle. And then we get two tactics for true discipleship. That's Christians and Christians pointing one another to Jesus. And here's number one, not just a message, but our very lives. And here's number two, not just individually holy, but collectively holy. Okay, so five tactics that Paul is now going to write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 of how to live the Christian life to this infant church that has been around for probably two weeks, maybe a little longer. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now put your eyes on the words in vain or not in vain. Do you guys see those words there in the text? The Greek behind that is just the word empty, okay? So in vain means empty. That our words to you, our coming to you, and our preaching the gospel to you was not empty. Now what does that mean? Well, one of the things we do when we're studying the Bible and we want to know what something means is we check to see if its opposite is also there in the text. So in this situation, we have, we didn't come with emptiness, but we did come. Now we want to look for that. We want to look for that. Where is it? It's right there in verse two. Do you see it? Boldness. We didn't come to you with emptiness. We came to you with boldness. Okay. So now what we're understanding is that whatever emptiness means, it means the opposite of boldness. And then I want you also to notice that the boldness is coming in the midst of a very particular season 
or a very particular time in Paul's life. It's coming during a time of persecution and suffering. Do you notice that right there? He had just come from Philippi, where the the Philippians had treated him really poorly, and here he comes to Thessalonica, and he says, though we had been experiencing persecution for preaching the gospel, we were bold among you and not empty. So what does that mean? What is empty? Here's what I'm gathering. I'm gathering from this text that there is a way to preach the gospel where the words of the gospel might be true. The words of the gospel might be coming out of your mouth, but they just fall flat on the floor before they hit the ears and the heart of the person that's responding. So you speak true words, but those words are empty words. Those words are devoid of anything with them, any power with them that's actually going to to affect the person's heart. And why? Why? Well, the boldness was in the midst of persecution and suffering. And it was a boldness that Paul was saying, no matter what, I'm going to continue to preach this gospel. But the emptiness would be this, that in the midst of persecution and suffering, you stop. That in the midst of persecution, something, when things get hard, you go, okay, I'm not, I'm not, my lips are sealed. And he said, that would be an emptiness of the gospel. That you preach the gospel when things are all good, but as soon as things get hard, I stop preaching the gospel. And what does that display? What's actually on display then? Chris Gannon was just up here talking about this, this dot and this arrow. And I love that because he just said that this dot is our life now and the arrow is eternity. And that the the gospel is about the coming of Christ, not just 2,000 years ago, not just to die on a cross, although that is the center of human history, but it is also the coming of Christ as king and as Lord again. That he's coming again and that he reigns over all. And guess what? He reigns over eternity. And so for the Christian that's going to proclaim the gospel of of this eternal God who reigns over all, who has promised for us a hope, a living hope, it says, that we will one day be with him face to face. And then as they're preaching that, simply lives for this world, is frankly living a lie different than what they're speaking. And friends, the people that we share the gospel with can tell. They can see more than we think about the way in which we preach to them. And so if we, in the midst of some persecution, and let's be honest about what this persecution is, I don't think any of us are going before a death squad today if we preach the gospel. But as John Piper has has so sort of famously said, we today fear more of the raised eyebrow, and I can't do it, than the raised fist of a government that's coming after us. We fear the raised eyebrow. That's the, you're weird. And so our cowering in the face of that kind of persecution simply creates a vanity with the words that we're speaking. It creates an emptiness with the words that we're speaking. And Paul says, we didn't do that. We came to you with boldness, even though people were testing the truth of our gospel every single time. As we've said before from this stage before, there was an early church father named Tertullian, and he said this famously, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Why? 
Why? What's the metaphor? Well, the metaphor is a little gross, but as the blood of the martyrs was pouring out onto the ground, it was as if new Christians were just popping up all over the place. Why? Because as they held true to their testimony, as they held true to the gospel, even in the midst of their blood being spilled, others were going, they really believe that. And as a result, were believing themselves. So there is a boldness in the midst of suffering that actually leads others to look at us in our message and go, you really believe that? So number one, if you're taking notes, Paul's gospel preaching was bold in the midst of suffering. Let's look at number two now. Not deceptive, but faithful. Not deceptive, but faithful. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. He says this, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So notice what Paul says now he didn't come with, with the gospel. He didn't come with error. He didn't come with impurity in the gospel. He didn't come with an attempt to deceive in the gospel. Now, let me ask this question. Why would anyone want to put error into the gospel? Why would anyone want to put impurity or deception into the gospel? And there might be multiple reasons to this answer, but I'm going to focus on one. And it it focuses around one word. And that word is results. Results. The gospel is hard. In fact, might I say... The gospel is impossible to receive. And what we will tend to do, being in general a society that loves results, is we will tend to find ways to make the gospel more palatable for our hearers. Make it a little easier. Why not, right? Why not? And one way in which that has happened in our world today is let's just simply remove the idea that suffering happens in the Christian life. Let's just get it out. Let's remove it. So that now I can say to you, if I'm preaching the, my version of the gospel, which by the way, I'm just going to say right now, if you're hearing me, this is not the true gospel. And I would say to you at this moment, speaking falsely, that, that the gospel is that you come and you receive Jesus. And Jesus is... He is, he's all powerful and he, he is, he is a good, he's a good God who loves you. And because he loves you, nothing bad is ever going to happen to you again. You're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy because after all, doesn't he own the cattle on a thousand hills and isn't he a wealthy God? And at that point, people just, yeah, and they, they stand up and they cheer. And what you're offering them is a life. They get a vision of that life ahead of them and they go, wow, right now I'm sick and I'm in poverty. And well, wouldn't, wow, I'm going to come to this Jesus. And what we have found across the world, and especially here in the U.S., is that you can fill stadiums with people that are willing to come if you just take that one element out. And here's what they do, by the way. They just take the verses about heaven, like the verses where we're going to be with Jesus in heaven, and they just draw those verses into today, and they say, see, see, look, it says it in the Bible. That's for you. 
And, and, and people across the world are being led away by this gospel. And this is just one example of the way you introduce just a little bit of impurity, just a little bit of error into that gospel, and it completely destroys it. And it is a lie. And they will discover it's a lie when that first moment of sickness comes, when that first moment of poverty comes. And then, if I could just say this because it's 11 and I know I have a little more time to talk to you, and then what they do is they say, you don't have enough faith, that's why. And they ought to be ashamed of themselves because what they have done, the teachers of this, is they have twisted scripture. And scripture has harsh things to say about them. But let's not do that, friends. Let's keep the gospel pure. And that's what Paul says here. As he says, we didn't come to you. And here's point number two. Paul doesn't give in to the temptation to let results drive what he preaches. Number three, not manipulative, but gentle. Not manipulative, but gentle. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 7. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Here's point number three, if you're taking notes. Unlike other preachers in Paul's day, he did not manipulate people for greedy gain. And there are all kinds of examples of this in our world. And because of time, I'm gonna keep this relatively short. But the gospel is of such a value that we, we destroy it when we use it for our own building up of our own kingdoms. And oftentimes we see this happening. In Paul's day, there was this idea of an itinerant preacher who traveled around from city to city, traveling to the different churches. And oftentimes they would bring the true gospel. It wasn't necessarily that they were heretics, although many were. But these guys would show up and they would show up in a town. They'd say, hey, I'm here to preach on Sunday. And this little church, this young church has been maybe around for a few weeks, goes, okay, we really need that help. And then they say, oh, but by the way, I want you to put me up for the entirety of this week. Oh, and by the way, I brought a family of five. Put us all up for the week, and then I expect to be paid for my services at the end of this. Now, I'm not saying this is not to get into a whole thing of do we, do we pay our preachers, okay? But here's the idea. They took that money, and then they went on, and they were gone. And Paul says, look, we didn't do that. We didn't do that. We didn't use this gospel to, to manipulate you into stirring up more of an offering that you could then give for us to send us on our way. And there are examples galore in our culture today of where this has happened. For, for instance, you've seen preachers on TV that have done this. Paul says, we didn't come with a manipulative spirit, but we came with gentleness. Those are the three now about gospel preaching. Let's turn to two now about discipleship, about how we as believers with one another encourage us, encourage each other towards Christ. The first is this, not just a message, but ourselves, okay? Not just a message, but ourselves. First Thessalonians 2, 8 through 9, 
So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And here's the point, if you're taking notes, Paul's discipleship was more costly than an evangelism message. I'm going to say that one more time. Paul's discipleship was more costly than an evangelism message. There is a way to share a message with someone and not to share your life with them. (laughs) That I'm going to give to you a message, I'm going to throw it out there, but I have no ability to actually share life with you. Now, we love this, right? In the Christian church, we should love this because what is this? What are we talking about here? We're talking about evangelism. We're talking about the sharing of the message of the gospel such that another person actually comes to trust Christ. Isn't that glorious? Man, we should say that's glorious. And if we can gather up a bunch of resources and if we can do it where we're speaking to entire stadiums of people and hundreds of thousands of people are hearing that message, should we not do it? Yes, we should do it. However, however, There are some things that we really need to think about when we start making the message of the most importance and we're not actually the discipleship that needs to follow that message. Because here's the deal. We can celebrate over the gospel going forth, yes, but that is just the beginning of that life. And here's what often it leaves a bunch of people doing. Hundreds of thousands of people here, maybe tens of thousands make a heartfelt response to the gospel. And then as the days and the weeks go by, they look around them and they go, what do I do now? And they're not in a church. There's nobody around them. They went to an event where they heard a message preached, but there was nobody to actually say, let me be your FTO. Let me show you how this actually works. And so they are caught in this sea of people and they don't really know how it is that they are supposed to live out this Christian life. And Paul says, I didn't come to you and just throw a message at you. I came to you and I, with a desire to share my heart. Now, some would say, well, you didn't get the chance to, Paul. And I think that's why he's writing this. Do you realize, Christians, that our desire is to be with you and walking with you as you're living out this Christian life? And we get really excited about the evangelism because what can we do? We can say, another person came to Christ today, another person came to Christ today, and we can start notching those things up on our wall and talking about how great it is. Let me tell you about discipleship. Discipleship, there's no notches. Do you know why? This person goes through their entire life now as a Christian, and discipleship is about carrying them, helping them, being with them, guiding them throughout the entirety of their life until they get to the end of their life in that cancer wing of the hospital. And here's the gathered church around them singing praises to Jesus as this person breathes their last. That's when you get to put a notch up. Praise God, somebody, we, we, we were with somebody to the end of their life, following with them to the end of their life. But along the way, it was messy, 
and man, there was sin, and man, there was, there was conflict, and there was difficulty going on throughout that entire time. But at the end of the day, they trusted in Christ, and they breathed their last. We've handed them over. That's discipleship. And there's not a lot of notches that you can put up and say, we did this. Isn't it great? Because we're in process. All of us are. And I, and I think Paul is encouraging this kind of discipleship to characterize the church. The kind that has Christians caring for each other and not just throwing a gospel message out and then saying, okay, I'm done. Now that leads into the next one, and this is the final one we'll talk about. Not just individually holy, but collectively holy. Now it's going to take me a second to argue for this one. You may not see it right away. I'm going to try to argue for it. 1 Thessalonians 2, 10 to 12, here's what he says. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, let's start with the first three words that we see appear there of interest. Righteous, holy, and righteous, and blameless. Let me ask you this. Paul says, we were these things among you. Now, what do you think of when you normally see those three words? I'll tell you what I normally think of. I think of a list of sins that I don't do. Like, I think of, oh, okay, to live holy is to say I don't do, and you start listing them off. And, 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 and let me just show you and betray kind of what's going on in my heart right there. I am thinking about holiness as my life lived compared to God's standard. And I'm saying, okay, I'm holy if I, by the Spirit, by God's grace, am living worthy of the calling that he has given me. Right? Me and God. Me and God. But I want you to notice right here the word for in verse 11. Because Paul is about to explain to us how he's holy. Here's what holiness looks like, Paul is saying. Starting with the word for. For you know, like a father with his children, how we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. In other words, Paul doesn't see holiness as just his own individual life before God. Paul sees holiness as his exhortation and encouragement and care of other believers around him towards their holiness. And then Paul can say, that's how we were holy. We were holy in that we were caring for other people in their holiness. We took a responsibility to actually care for the people around us and whether they were going off the rails or whether they were staying true to how God would have them live. So point number five, if you're taking notes, five, Paul desired that holiness pervade the entire church and not just me. There's a collective care going on here. There's a discipleship that's happening where Paul says, here's holiness, me caring about you and you caring about me. And there's all kinds of reasons why this is difficult in our day today. Number one is just our individualism. We are individuals. We think about things in terms of me and what I need to do. I'm not even calling that selfish. I'm just calling it individual. 
all right? Second of all, we don't like, and maybe this is connected, we tend to not like when other people tell us what to do, right? So it makes those coffee conversations, you know the one where you got to take that friend out to coffee and you got to help them kind of see that the current life that they're living is not living for the glory of God, right? Have you ever had those conversations where you're exhorting them to turn to maybe to you're encouraging them? Come on, this is what God's word says. Don't do this. Don't do this. And then they just look at you like, what are you doing? Get out of my life. And so they're challenging. But part of the reasons they're challenging is because we need a culture of Christians that are willing to do this for one another and also let this be done to them by others. And it just takes opening up God's word and realizing that we, are, we have to be that kind of people. That this getting us to the end where we're following after Christ and we're not straying to the left or to the right and we're not taking up a gospel that isn't the true gospel is required to, there's other people around us that are required to make that happen to the end. That this, the simple way to say that is your holiness is a community project. And so here is Paul saying, here's what we did. We exhorted you, now go and do the same. Go find others and do the same. So in closing, I wanna, I wanna talk to three people, three groups in this room. And the first is this, I, I wanna talk to you. If you are here and you're hearing me, you know, maybe you're here with a friend and maybe this, is, this whole gospel thing is totally new to you, totally foreign to you. You just heard me give a sermon to Christians. And that's true. This, this is to a church. This is to those who are, have already responded to, received the gospel, and now it's kind of a how do we live kind of sermon. But I, I want you to know I'm thankful that you're in this room. And here's what I would hope you would have heard from this whole thing. That this gospel that we're speaking about, and I'm going to tell you what it is in a second, that this gospel that we're speaking about is worthy of, of us receiving persecution and response that's not always positive towards our message, that there's a, there's a willingness because of the value of the gospel that we're willing to even, to, to, to even suffer if that needs to happen. I want you to hear that. And I want you to hear that it's so valuable that we don't want any impurity, anything outside of this book of what this says to come into the gospel. And we don't want to be manipulative. And what we want to do is to present the truth to you. And here's the truth as we believe it for you, that Jesus Christ died on a cross, that you by faith could have your sins transferred to him, that the punishment on that cross was actually God's punishment of sin. And then the life that he lived, the righteous life that he lived could be transferred to you, that you would one day stand before God and be able to say, I am righteous not because of my own righteousness, not because of my own list of good deeds that I have done, but I'm righteous because I've clung to Jesus. And that he would hear that and see that, and you would be welcomed into salvation, welcomed into God's presence, simply because you have trusted in another who was better than you. And that person is Jesus Christ. And so I would hope that you would hear that and would respond to that this morning. Second, I want to talk to those who are brand new in their faith. Maybe for you, you have just come and, and to trust this gospel that I just talked about. You are brand new in the church and you're sitting there, much like the Thessalonians, going, what do we do? 
What are we supposed to do now? Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to find somebody who has walked this faith longer than you have. A field training officer. I want you to find somebody that can walk through life with you. And you may need, and this is, unfortunately, this is to our shame as a church, you may need to approach them and say, I need help. Would you help me? Would you show me how to do this? And here's the third group. Those of us that have been walking with Christ now for many, many years, and there's nobody in our lives right now where we are being that field training officer too. There's nobody right now. And I want to encourage you and plead with you that this is a foundational truth of the Christian life that we are to do this with one another. And, and, and I know the excuses. I have them myself. I don't know enough. Well, if they knew my life, boy, they would never want to, you know. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people say. Listen, remember, remember, we are called to teach people how to walk a life of repentance, which means you're called, if you're doing this with somebody, in your sin, to show them what repentance looks like in your sin, which means you're showing them that you're going to have sin. Just Show them your life. Show them how you walk. Show them how you pray. Show them how you read your Bible. Go spend time with them. It isn't just the pastors of your church. Wouldn't it be amazing if the entire, the entire um, group of Foothill Church, every, everybody in Foothill Church, had this going on with one another? That we could say to one another, every one of us has someone in our lives which we can look to and say, that's how I'm supposed to do this. So by God's grace, let's make that happen. Let's, let's, be, let's obey God's word in that way. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would come now and help us directly in that area, which is that we would come away from ourselves by your Holy Spirit and recognize the collective holiness that we're called to have as a church the way and we're supposed to be involved in each other's lives to the point there at times we have to say hard things to each other. And God, would you help us to avoid the trap of thinking that staff or elders or pastors that are, that are, that are in our church, that, it, that that's their job. And God, would you remind us that we, are, we as Christians are being spoken to directly by 1 Thessalonians, by Paul here. So God, give us the ability to do that. Help us to walk in that truth and to live that kind of life where we're caring for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.